Hello, Downhill fans, and welcome to another podcast of the American Downhiller podcast presented by SkiRacing.com, where we share our insights and stories and thoughts on the best sport in the world, World Cup Downhill, and the legendary tracks that will be run this winter. And today, we break down and talk about one of the most iconic downhills on the circuit, the Lauberhorn in Wengen. It's 2.7 miles long, longest on the circuit by about over half a mile. It drops 3,300 vertical feet. The course record, two minutes, 24 seconds set in 1997 by Christian Gadena with an average speed, get this, of over 66 miles an hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Doug Lewis, two-time Olympic downhiller, and I raced the Laberhorn in 1984. Not only a race that qualified me for the 1984 Olympics, but it was the race that marked the arrival of the American downhillers as Bill Johnson shocked the world and won it. The first ever World Cup downhill won by an American. Joining me are three of the fastest American downhillers in our history. AJ Kitt, a four-time Olympian, and also was in Wengen at a race in 1995 that made history. Kyle Rasmussen, the second American downhiller to win it, was also in that race. Next up, Darren Rawls, winner of 12 World Cups and the 2006 winner of the Lauberhorn, and we all bow to the master, and we will check out the trophy soon. And finally, the founder of the American Downhillers, Marco Sullivan, a four-time Olympian who stood on the podium at Wengen in 2009 in third place, and how cool is this? He was right next to his teammate, Bodie Miller, who placed second. So, a unique, a unique race and a unique set of trophies. And, and when did they hold that uh, ceremony? Do they do it right at the finish or is it at night? And it's something uh, under the lights. Big ceremony at night um, in town, middle of town, everyone's going crazy. And one of the coolest things, if you're on the podium, you get a helicopter ride from the finish down into town. So instead of having to go get on the packed train and go to town, you get to get in the chopper. That was like, the best part. <laughs> I got a lot of train rides. <laughs> Adrian, you missed that one. Louie, you missed that one. And then this, I went back to the Lava Horn 2020 as a 90th anniversary. And uh, they did these hats. So number 16 was my bib. And uh, it was really cool. I was back there with Kyle Rasmussen. That was fun. I was there in the audience cheering you guys on. It was incredible to see those two guys, uh, those two American guys up there with the, the, an unbelievable array of superstars in our sport that were being honored. And to see a couple of American guys up there really was uh, brought a tear to the eye. A lot of fun having you there, AJ. Plus, like, guys like Peter Mueller, Zerbriggen. I mean, even way further back. Like, and we, we went up on stage in the gear that we won in. So it was, I mean, my stuff wasn't that much different. But when you look at, like, Guys like Mueller, you know, in like this baggy yellow suit, Swiss cheese suit, or and the skis back then, the 230s. It was pretty cool to see like that kind of uh, gear that came out that evening. Yeah, it was very cool. I was doing a little homework, and, and it's been run since 1967. Jean-Claude Keeley won the downhill. Carl Schranz, Duvillard, uh, Ken Reed from Canada. You mentioned Klammer, Meyer. Eberharder, Stroltz, uh, Zerbringen, amazing names. And uh, pretty cool that Kyle Rasmussen, Darren Rolfs, Bodie Miller, 
are also part of that. So let's jump into the uniqueness of this. Uh, AJ, talk about this course and just how many different aspects it has that are so crazily unique. Well, Louie, I think you said it a couple of weeks ago on one of the other shows about how different each one of the, the World Cup downhills are. And Vangen is different as well for its own reasons. I mean, the biggest one is how long it is, right? It's over two minutes. It's close to two and a half. I don't think I ever wrote 230. So for the guys like me that are always slow there, uh, you get a little extra fun for your money. But um, the thing that I always noticed about that, was I just could never find the rhythm in Vangen, right? I mean, every course has its rhythm. Of course, a GS has got rhythm and a slum's got rhythm, but downhills have got rhythm too. And that's part of the beauty of our sport is figuring out what that rhythm is and kind of demystifying it and figuring out how the fastest way down the hill is. And man, for Vangen, I could never figure it out. You know, you get ripping, uh, you know, the top 45 seconds, you're ripping off the top of the mountain. And then they throw you into these two gigantic turns. One of them's like 160 degrees. And then a little drop through the hoonshaw that be, between these two rocks. It's like jumping down an elevator shaft. Then you start to accelerate again. You pick up big speed, you get into the water station and they shut you down with this really tight S turn. You drive or uh, ski under this uh, train tunnel, pick up speed again up to like hundred miles an hour down the Minch Conte. And then they shut you down with a couple more turns again. And, you know, I just could never dig the rhythm of that course. It was not for me. Um, I, I think I got top 15 once or twice, which, you know, might sound good. But, you know, back in the day when I was in the groove trying to, you know, win that title and getting in the, in the top three and the top five consistently, you know, being 14 to 15 felt like I was, as Tommy Moe might say, moonstones out, you know. Um, I just could not find the rhythm of that course. It was not for me. Yeah, uh, definitely a weird one. No other course, you're going 20 miles an hour in an S-turn and then 100 miles an hour a half a mile later. Uh, Darren, can you speak to the other aspects that are so unique, the town, the trains, that aspect? Yeah, well, uh, you know, there's a certain vibe there. I mean, the Swiss are really into ski racing. Um, it's it's different. I mean, you get to load the train. There's, there's cars, the front in the morning just for racers. So we don't get you know, blocked out by all the fans. So they reserve certain cars for racers. And when you come back around after uh, training or inspection, you come back up and jump on it um, a little ways up and they have like empty trains just for us to get on. Otherwise, like you just be sitting there and might as well walk to the top. But it's uh, yeah, unreal, like amphitheater, uh, side hill um, below uh, Hunschaft for the fans, AJ and I were there a couple of years ago on, I mean, just out of hand, they got the rock, rock stations, schnapps, beers flowing, you know, like all the food and partying's going crazy. And it's like, it's yeah, perfect. It's, it's like this flat section and keeps rising up. So they could stack so many people in there with a good view. And then there's a the VIP big um, scaffolding right underneath the uh, Minch Conte. And then you go up a next step up, which AJ was talking about, those huge turns before Hunschaft. And there's people there. There's people on the course. There's helicopters lined up all over the place because the high rollers, they don't want to deal with like deal or jump on the train. They'll just heli right up to the to the mountain. And there's just parked helis all over the place. The overall energy that I was able to pull from that race was just out of hand. And I think one thing too, it's got the best show, pre-show. The Swiss come out with their fighter jets and the big plane and just nuking by left and right, putting this like half an hour show on the air. And it just kind of like I would just take that in and just as a ski racer, just 
you know, you're sitting there looking at the Eiger and down the town and you have these planes flying by. And there's just one more thing that completely amped me up. What's up, Pino? A special guest on the American Downhiller podcast. Please welcome the voice of NBC Alpine skiing and former World Cup downhiller himself, the legendary Pino, Steve Perino. Pino, what's up? How's it going? We got everyone in here. We got the Travises. It's a busy household right now. I mean, that's when you're in the world of ski racing, you turn your house over to people like AJ and whoever needs shelter and their kids are in the ski <laughs> Pino, we're talking about what makes uh, Vengen unique. Any thoughts from you? We've talked about the craziness and uniqueness of the course. We've talked about the town and the trains. What stands out for you? What's the story about Vengen for you? Whenever anyone asks me, like, where's my favorite place to go? It's Vengen. I mean, it's like right out of a postcard. It's, and it's so different, right, from anything you have in the U.S. Uh, I mean, you, you take this 110-year-old, well, it was 110 years old when I went there. So it's probably like 200-year-old cog railway up to this town where they don't have the electric. I haven't been listening to but yeah, I'm sure you guys have all had that same kind of, you get there as an American for the first time. And it's like, it's like nothing you've ever seen. You can't believe people still live like this. And it's kind of etched into a granite wall. And you can't believe like people are clinging to the wall to, and that's where they live. And I don't know, just like going to the start of a downhill, right? It takes you... Like you, if you miss the train, your day's done. It's not like missing the train. I speak your experience. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and then you end up in this little village at the top of the mountain. It's like, it's otherworldly. I, I just, you know, I, I'm oftentimes without words when it comes to that place. And um, makes me want to go get, I've, we've got a little rodel in the back. And it's got my daughter's name engraved on it. On the other side, it says Fangan. And it was like, you know, oh, and I cool. remember bringing there when she was five years old, dragging around town on a little rodel. It's just, uh, if anyone has a chance to go anywhere in Europe, I would put Vengen at the top of their list. One thing I'd like to add is the uniqueness continues into town. Uh, as the Americans and probably the Canadians joined us, we played hockey because they had a hockey rink in town and we'd, we'd uh, totally tap out our legs playing hockey. And then we had to go run a two and a half minute downhill the next day. There was also a 30 meter, I don't know if you guys did this, we did this back in the 80, 84s. Uh, we, there was a 30 meter Nordic jump and we'd all take the Nordic jump with our downhill skis after training. We were idiots. We were, uh, uh, tapping out our legs, but it was part of being at Vengen, the hockey and the Nordic jump. So we're going to jump into the, into the downhill. It's two and a half minutes long, but starting it off is a 45 section, uh, that is a blistering Autobahn. And Marco, why don't you take, uh, take us through what that first 45 seconds is? Yeah, the top of Vengen. I mean, the, the whole spectacle that we've all been chatting about, I mean, it carries over to the start as well, because there's like a huge start bar right next to the start. So you've got a thousand Swiss people, you know, <laughs> sitting there partying. You got the Eiger right on your left. Um, you just had the the big plane show that happens right before the start. So you're like buzzing when you're up there. Um, and the course starts out like super classic downhill, just 45 seconds of in your tuck. There's one big uh, left footed turn where you really got to nail that. But after that, there's you're pretty much pinned in your low tuck 
there's two jumps up there, uh, the Rushi sprung and I guess a couple of other little rollers, no uh, official jumps, but it's just a super fun section and it gets you fired up for what's to come. And for me, I always love the top section. Um, when I was on the podium there, I won the top section and then proceeded to lose time the rest of the way down, but <laughs> like held on to a good race. But for me, that whole, that top 45 seconds was like a dream, just hauling ass and, and uh, loving it. Could you feel the, the speed there? Did you always know that you were fast up there? What was the feeling like? Was it just in preparation for the rest of this course or did you take that section as part of the downhill? I definitely took that section as part of the downhill and um, I could, for me personally, it was like the first left footed turn. So you go out to start, you're in your tuck for about 10 seconds. You get up to speed really quick. You're probably going about 60 and there's a big, it's like a three or four gate corridor around this big left footed corner. And if I could do that turn well, that would set me up for the, the whole rest of the top because you would carry your speed out of there you know you're you're kind of starting your journey down this mountain for the next two and a half minutes and um one year i actually put it on my hip there and that was like the worst two and a half minutes ever because i knew i was out of the race on the first turn but if you do that one well it just you build your speed for that whole top section and and then you kind of flip your mind when you're coming into the hoonshaw or the carousel turn in hoonshaw and that was you know, darren can talk more about that section because he was money in there. Be money. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it all came down to Hoonshoff Willie. He's giving me some good vibes there. This old guy, he looked like Santa. He had this beard way down to here. He looked like Uli Luthi, you know. From all the years I've been there, he didn't change. Like, he didn't age a day, it looked like. He was just old to start with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, uh, you know, I just, he was the guy that basically, like, the pieced. Uh, chief in that section telling all the guys what to do clean the line off and I kind of I had my own line there a little bit so I would be talking in like hey I was slipping this one section out like really like far out wide to like the net on the right side before the takeoff and I was coming in tight on the left and then fading out to the right and it wasn't like cleaned off the first year I was kind of slipping in but um you know just I was trying to harness everything I could get out of that course and and that was just one of those moments that like you know, met something special, but I just feel like I was taking a little more energy from Hoonshaw Willie there to go fast. But that is one of the coolest sections because like AJ was talking about before you were coming off and it's like a diving board. You can't see anything except for the takeoff and it rolls away and it just completely drops. And the more you go skiers, right, the bigger drop it's going to be. So you got to kind of be careful how far right you go. You want to try and like squeak back to the left as fast as you can on takeoff. But um, I think the defining factor for me in that win in 06 was the next section coming up where off the uh, Hunshaft, there's a right footer off Minchkante, they call it. And Pedro came to me, my coach, about 10 o'clock at night, and he found something on split screen and he got me out of bed. I was actually shutting the lights, you know, or shutting it down. The lights are off. He's like, I got to show you one more thing. Found something, way to make some more speed there. And so we reviewed it and it was like coming off, actually hooking up underneath the gate and like projecting myself up to the left side on the pitch on the wall and basically land and go hard because I could squirt and make like more speed out of that. And there's one guy that did it that wasn't 
they didn't, you know, it wasn't fast in the splits. He just did that one section really well, but that was a huge difference. I nailed it first time, you know, in the race, like I, I was committed. I'm like, I'm going to go for it. And that right there set me with so much speed and stayed high on the basketball turn exiting that and into the fence don't go into the Karen and us, which that section was a big factor in my win. But like Marco said, like every section on this Hill is so important. I had to really focus on that top section because that's where I could have you know lost the most. I ran it uh, a little bit before your time when there was nets, we, ha we had it where it was the wooden fence. So you came onto the road before the Kernan S, which is the, um, I think they called it the uh, Berkeley S? Ber the, the Berkeley S. Berkeley S. S. Park. They became the, so you were going uh, 50 miles an hour and you had to be on this fence. So it was whipping by your, your left eye. You had to count up a certain amount of wooden slats before you put them sideways. Yes, you put them sideways in a downhill and you went 50, 50 miles an hour into a left footed turns and the end of your skis would hit the wooden uh, plank. So it'd go as you put them sideways, uh, hopefully got a little weight on your left ski, then got on your right ski, went up on the bank and through the tunnel. But Pino, talk about some of the things we've seen uh, calling that race in the Kernan S, where people have gone into the trees and hit airbags. Yeah, well, Sully, what are you telling? Like, Sully, <laughs> Sully disappeared into the woods. It's the first time I've seen you coming out of the woods. My, my helmet flew off my head on that turn when I hit the airbag. <laughs> and then, that wasn't the only time either. Jeez. Yeah. I, I mean, it's right. How do you, I mean, here's like, how do you even train for that? What, like that is, again, it's like, that's not part of, I mean, it is part of skiing, right? But it's, it's, you don't, you don't train for it. But like what Louie described, that's all I remember is like the tails of my skis. I don't even know if there was a fence, you know, I don't recall. I was like, it was the edge and your tails were just in the air. You know, our skis, there was no way we could turn that, make no, that turn, right? You can't, I mean, I came out like literally V2ing. Like I'd never came out of going faster than Nordic speeds, ever. <laughs> the Brooklyn yeah. S there, Pino, like what you were talking about, if you're, a, if you're a fan watching the race, they've got the speed trap coming in and the speed trap exiting. So you can always tell how guys did on that section. And that sets you up for the whole you know, after the tunnel, which is the only place you can relax. So that's like a big indicator of what's going to happen there. You know, for me every year, they're, they're up on that right bank after the, the you know, on the right footed turn, there's always a little tree branch sticking up out of the snow. And it was a different one every year, but it was there all week, you know? And so I'd always gauge my, my run by where I was at. Sometimes I was above it. Sometimes I was below it. And on by God, on race day, I tried not to ski over it because you don't, you know, you want to ski over a, a, you know, the pine branch with your race skis. But, you know, that was, I was always going up on the bank. I knew that. Well, I wasn't staying down low. So I was always gauging my, how I was doing on that one, on that one tree. You know, key factor in that uh, coming into it, like Louie is talking about, you're going by that like fence line and you're inches away. It's like on an F1 track. And there was like that, there was a gate on the, I don't know if they had a gate always, but we had a gate on that corner. And in training, I could not, the time it was always late. I was like about a foot off this thing. And I was like losing ground through the turn right there, going into the, you know, off that bank and then into the tunnel. But race day was another thing. 
maybe another defining factor there. I was like, I am going to tag that gate. Like I am just, I'm going to make the move before. And it's like Braveheart, you know, hold, hold, <laughs> hold, and then go. And I, I was like, that was in my head. That was my, one of my favorite movies of all time. But I was like saying that like three times, hold, 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 and then go. And I came in and just nailed that gate. And I was just like, hell yeah. Because like, I felt like that was, you know, part of it. And that was like another section. It was like a win for me right there to keep going. And, and, uh, those little, you know, like going back to how awkward banging is like those little sections so different, but those little wins, they just keep kind of, you know, adding up and, and, you know, obviously in time, but like mentally as well. I, I've noticed out. like an evolution in that turn where guys now come in a little bit like rally car, right? They do a counter. Yeah. You know, they go, I, I want to say Dominic Paris did yeah. it. Maybe you guys have noticed that, but just like, yeah, turn one way. So you have something to put up against the ski on the left side. Yeah. It's just such a, it's such a creative space. Yeah. I would always get so mad at the GS skiers when they would come and, and, and run that downhill because, you know, as a glider, I'd be fast at the top and fast in the middle and, you know, fast in some sections. And then you'd have these GS guys and they'd be ripping through there like it was nothing. And we'd have to watch them in, in, uh, in video that night. And it's like, here, do it this way. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I can't do it that way. This guy doesn't count because he's a GS guy. <laughs> There's some issues still boiling with AD. Oh, I got issues. You were on 230s. Yeah, well, for a couple of years I was. And then even on the 215s, I couldn't make it work. And that section there, my first year, I stood up. I was lost. I came out of the tunnel. I'm like, where are we going now? Yes. Did you get lost too? <laughs> Oh man, like you know, it's so much to like put in your head there and process, man. I came out of that tunnel, and, like, and it, you come up out of the tunnel, right? And it's like a big roller, you can't see. And I was way off the mark, like pointing 20 feet to the left, which I should have been bit back to the right. And I had to stand up and like take a moment, like, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> the only course you can get lost in, like Rass, I remember him telling me what he did to relax so that there was something left in the tank in the last, well, it took you two minutes and a half. It took me three. So I had to, I had to be fitter than you. And, um, but Rast, I mean, like, <laughs> he'd, come out, tunnel, he'd come, out, he'd come out of the tunnel and he'd start whistling to stay relaxed. So he'd whistle all the way to Hunnicksius. Yeah. You ever, do you ever try, do you ever hear that? No. I never heard it until when AJ and I went back to uh, Vangen two years ago, went to the U.S., like the downhill meeting, right? Night before the race. I think Rass brought that up. He brought that up yeah. about him whistling to try and like take his, you know, just relax and kind of settle in. As a That's your only opportunity there to rest. I mean, it really is because even after Honig shoes, you know, there's some turns, but you're going so damn fast there and all the little bumps, your legs are smoked by then. So if you can save a little bit in that one section between the tunnel and the Super G turns, what is it like? eight, maybe 12 seconds. That's your only, only moment to like, let your muscles recover for a moment. I do have to get something off my chest uh, in training only, not in the race uh, because there wasn't enough coaches to cover all the sections after we left the this tunnel. This is a confessional. There, after the tunnel, there was no coach until the uh, Honig shush. So it was like, for me, it was like 20 seconds. And so during trainer training, just to save my legs, I would get up out of my tuck 
and kind of shake my legs out for that section, be, knowing that no video was being taken or no one would see me. And then I would hop back in my tuck during the haunting shush. And I was always slow in that section, but now everybody knows why I was saving my legs for race day. So I just had to get up, that off my chest. Sure, you weren't the only one. Good for you, uh, Sully, last section it's we haven't covered is the Honig Shush. A hundred miles an hour, I think back in 2013 or 2015 with Johan Clary, you were there. What is it like? Describe the feeling of going down that Honig Shush where you just hyperspace. I always felt like, you know, it's a really fast section. That year when Clary went 100, I think most of us were going in 98, 99. It was just a really fast year, but I didn't really feel that different. I mean, once you're over 90 or whatever it is, you know, it's all. And it's, the bell goes off every time you go over 100. Yeah. <laughs> you get up where an angel gets its wings. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was no, to me, there was no distinction between 99 or 92 or whatever. But it was always, it was, it, I don't know the dimensions on that run, but it's a, uh, imagine like the steepest run in your home mountain that's i don't know 20 seconds long or whatever and there that's that's that shoot was there's no gates in it it's just a narrow entry and then a gate at the very bottom and you just tuck straight down it and it was awesome yeah <laughs> it's like i see though a little validation after all those super g turns you're like all right now i can open it up again hey marco <laughs> like the fastest the fastest i've ever been is 93 on that and uh, I mean, was it because like where they make up those next like seven miles an hour? Was it because it was like maybe a little less swing going into it or was it really icy that year or smooth? Like I, I think it was just the snow that year. Um, uh -huh. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the overall times reflected that, but um, I don't remember the course set being different, really. It was just the snow uh -huh. was fast and maybe there's a tailwind. I don't know. <laughs> You know, an interesting thing for the viewers that have seen Johnson's run from 84 when he won there, when he like caught an edge and went way off course and came back in and that, this is the section we're talking about. So, I mean, he wasn't going a hundred then, but it's the fastest part of Vengen where Johnson caught that edge, went way off into the powder and came back in and still won that race. So um, that, that's a, it's a tricky section. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing there too, like you had to look so far ahead. It's like when you're driving down Audubon, going really fast you gotta look way ahead like that to me was like something like i knew the speed's gonna be quick and so like making myself really look down the hill further and then uh you still have like you have some big turns that you're that leads into that but then also the last two turns and i uh the first time i actually purposely slid my ski was there in that winning day the right footer next to the fence where there's like the right footer left and right dropping in the finish. I purposely came in there, stood up and just like put my skis a little sideways scrubbed. So it was, I could get this timing down because I was, when I was, if I was coming in there locked in straight, it was hard to kind of finish the turn and, and link it up really nice. But um, just having that extra poof, you know, that we kind of like never do, or you should never do if you want to go fast. That's what I'm talking about with that yeah, course yeah. is you're not supposed to do that kind of stuff. And Bengen makes you do that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like sliding my turn. <laughs> well, I think that's like you've mentioned before, it's hard to find a flow on that course. There's like, you get a couple turns and all of a sudden it's like a long section or something else, or you get jammed up in a, in a turn there. Karen and asked before going to the, uh, the tunnel. 
And it's just like all these little things. There's like different tempos, rhythms, and just feelings all the way down. A number of different ones. And, you know, I kind of like that, though. I just like having to be able to adjust and have the variety. Think about the guys that, like, created that course a hundred years ago. Like, what were they thinking? So this is crazy. Like, I went back and I started kind of trying to, like, gather a little history of, uh, of the lava horn. I went back a couple of years ago and I went in, actually this is when I was racing and I went to see Carl Molitor. He was a local guy, grew up in Bend. I got my rotal. From him at Molitor Sports. Yeah. So I asked if he was there, walk in and like, who are you? Like Darren Rouse, do American? Like, Oh really? So they went back and he was in his little office and I went back there and started talking to him. He told me a story of him actually right down there at the bottom of the Honig shoes before it drops in the last little section, he went off course and actually fell and like just tumbled, got back up and skated around the gate and he still won. And it was like, that's when like, it was like a five minute track, you know, but fresh snow, but his like, his ski club guys that were like prepping the tracks and hey, Carl, before the race, we stomped out this little straighter section and you know, he knew exactly what they're talking about. So he, and there's, there was more, room back then there was gates it was basically your ski in the mountain and he went off this blind section it was all packed down sidestepped but these guys told him they got totally out of control and ate it gets back up and still wins this is downhill this is probably back in the 50s but you know it's just like classic stuff and and they had to actually inspect by walking up the track or walking along the side and just kind of peering off like the road looking down there there is no like lift to the top and skiing down and going back up for your race run. Crazy. I'm going to uh, end uh, with asking each of you um, probably your favorite win or your favorite run on this course. Darren, hopefully it's about your win there. I, I got to go. I got to make dinner for AJ. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to hyperspace back to 1984. 1984 when Bill won was something really amazing. No American had ever won. We didn't, we weren't even welcomed into the World Cup, really. The Americans, they put us in the bad hotels. They just laughed at us. And when Billy won in 84, and he knew he could win, we all kind of kind of knew he could win, but he believed in it. When he came through there with that wild run where he went off course and came back on, it really shocked the world. And it was quiet. The Europeans could not believe it. It was quiet at the finish. There was just, you know, uh, Topper Hagerman and a couple other uh, uh, people yelling and, and we were jumping all over the place. But it was really an amazing change. The Americans had arrived as downhillers. And a year later, I won my medal. And a, a part of that was because of the confidence and the, and the change in our in our feeling that we had in, in 1984 because Billy won. So, uh, that was an amazing time. Uh, Perino, you've called a million of these races. Maybe you were in one that you remember. What, what, what win stands out for you, uh, putting you on the spot? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many moments. There's something to be said about when, um, like, a Swiss skier wins at home, right? And so, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, like, Yanka winning at home it's just sort of that electric feeling of just that hometown I can't it's funny I can't remember seen so many I can't remember a specific one but when the Swiss win at home you know it's just it's sort of like you know when the U.S. guys do so well in Beaver Creek it's something just really electric and that crowd there 
it, it, it's amazing, right? I mean, that crowd there is unbelievable. When you think about the people, when you come off the Hoonshop, right? And you look up, I don't know what that face is called, but there's like 20,000 people on that face, right? And it's just, it, it sort of underscores the importance of these classic events where you, there is so much fanfare and you feel that the most when a Swiss gear wins. You know, it's not that I wasn't, you know, cheering for the boys, our boys, when they won. I mean, that was spectacular. And those were, those were rare, right? But, um, yeah, I, th I think there's something about when that crowd comes alive, when, when, they're, when their guys win. Uh, I'm going to go next because I got a hybrid between the two of you guys. My favorite was, was when Rass won. And, you know, that, that's an easy one because, you know, he's my, he was my teammate. He's an American. But, but I have to say that Pino's right, like, the Swiss, and, and honestly, a lot of the European fans really, really appreciate the sport, and they and they get it, and they and they know so much about it. They're like they're like students of the sport, and so they really appreciate anybody that can ski fast, right? They they want their countrymen to win, but they can appreciate someone from another country if they're doing well. And to be honest, I mean, when Ras won that day, he started with Bib One, and nobody expected him to win. I don't know if it, I don't know if Ras expected himself to win or not, but nobody expected Ras to win except for maybe him. And those 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 fans, and I don't know about it at the finish line because I wasn't there for much until much later. But I can tell you later that day and all night long, those Swiss fans really appreciated that that Ras had won and the way he won because that was that was a legit run. And I have always felt that it's just a little bit harder for the North Americans to go to Europe and do well, because, you know, it's, it's sort of their sport as they see it. And, and, and we always feel like we're at a disadvantage. We're not at home. We're not, you know, getting to go home between races and we're eating different food and a whole different culture and everything. And I really feel like when we can go over there and do well, uh, have any kind of success, much less win. I just feel like we're going and winning under the most difficult circumstances. So that was a really, really sweet win uh, for our team. I would echo actually what AJ said about Rass um, for when he won that I was a first year fist racer. And I remember it vividly because, you know, Rass was from the far West, um, same division as I was. And I just remember waking up and hearing that he won and seeing the run on TV. And it was just really special and uh, kind of awoke the fire in me to be like, you know, we, we can do it being, being from the West. And, um, and the second one for me was when Darren won, um, you know, I was a teammate of Darren's obviously, and we all knew that Darren was going to arrive on at Bormio and Kitzbühel and Beaver Creek. Um, he was going to be on the podium, but Bengen was kind of, there was a question mark there being a smaller guy and, um, and a really aggressive skier. And when he, won Vengen, that was another like we can win anything if Darren can win Vengen, you know. So um that was another big win and, and big memory for me. Thanks Marco. And I'm gonna say exactly what you guys were saying about uh RAS. I was in the van over in Europe racing and we heard on on the radio and it was just like what? You know uh we just got lit up so hard like in the van and it was just one of those like exceptional moments you know that you know american pride but also hey you know like we're making a statement over here as americans and uh that, that was really special but 
obviously my time there, I was second, um, one year then, and I was like, wow, I can really do it now. And that, that was an eye opener. So I, I really focused on that hill where I needed to improve on, you know, where I was a little weaker on top with gliding. And like Marco said before, that left footed turn out of the start was so critical to nail. And I really had to be on point there. And, the, and then like the, from there down the bottom was just like, it was kind of more my wheelhouse from Hootenshaw down to the finish. And it was my wife's birthday. And uh, so that was really cool. And then I woke up the next morning with this huge Swiss flag draped over my bed. And it's, it's in my garage right now. It's like a 10 by 10 foot uh, flag. So that's something really special. Like I think about it every day when I pull on the, pull the truck in the garage and see that, that Swiss flag there. And, and then obviously with Marco's success and, and Bodie, you know, winning there too, just, I mean, it's a good hill for Americans. Let's keep this tradition going boys. Nice. Uh, I think we're going to wrap it there. Hey, I want to thank AJ, Marco, D-Money, and special guest Steve Perino. Steve Perino will be calling this week's race in Vengen. And thanks for watching and listening to our American Downhiller podcast. If you liked it, spread the word. Share with your friends, coaches, teammates, and club. You can find us on SkiRacing.com to watch the video version. But we're now on audio form in either Spotify or Apple. Just search American Downhiller Podcast. It also helps a ton if you subscribe and also give us a great rating if you like the podcast. Looking forward, our next podcast will cover Kitzbühel, the Hanenkamm, the most dangerous downhill in the world. Please rent the movie The Strife, which shows you everything you need to know about this track. You might want to wear your helmet while you're watching that video. You won't want to miss this next podcast as Darren Rawls, who won the Hanukkah, will share with us what it takes to win on the strife. Thanks, everyone. And always remember, ski fast, take chances. <laughs> Cheers, boys. Cheers, Marco. See ya.